What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion on this Tuesday afternoon. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you have a question about the Catholic faith, not quite sure where to go to get that question answered. Uh, Maybe uh, you've tried a couple of search engines, nothing's really working. We are here for you. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. We are live on this Tuesday afternoon, eight th- Wednesday afternoon, ay yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> 833-288-3986. 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code and then 205-271-2985. And, of course, you can always send us an email. That address is ctc at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer, Matt Kabinsky our phone screener, Jeff Burson is on social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there live right now. Just put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see that. He will say, Hark, there is a question. And he'll send it to us here in Studio One. Hopefully we can answer that question on today's program. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. Are you ready for Advent? We're getting close. Uh, in Advent, the getting ready season? Well, it kind of is. So am I getting ready to get ready? So, yeah, this is like the this is the, the vigil of the vigil, I guess. I'm getting ready to get ready. Very good. We have a question, a local question. Don't get those too often, but this is from Deacon Danny right here in the Birmingham Diocese. Dr. Anders, several years ago during my diaconate formation, I heard Bishop Emeritus Robert Baker talking about his booklet, Reasons for Hope, and his thoughts and experiences regarding the way most Christians have all but abandoned the observance of Advent and are typically done with Christmas on or shortly after Christmas Day. I personally think it's ironic Good King Wenceslas is played from Thanksgiving to Christmas Day, but it can't be heard on local stations on the Feast of St. Stephen. Good point. My sense is that even among non-Catholic Christians, the observance of Christmas has has significantly changed over the past century. So, I would like very much uh, appreciate your insight on this situation. How did we go from most Christians observing Advent before Christmas Eve and observing the Christian Christmas season, which begins on Christmas Eve? And again, that's from Deacon Danny right here in our diocese. Yeah, thanks, Deacon. I appreciate the question. So as I'm I'm sure you know, Advent is traditionally a penitential season, and we don't live it that way often, but that's the way it's understood in the Church. And in the Eastern Rites of the Church, there is still an Advent fast, still an Advent fast. Now, there was a time in our country when there was fast, there were Advent fast days. Um, uh, So it used to be before 1917, the United States, uh, the Fridays of Advent were fasting days. Really? Yep. Um, And uh, and that, that changed after the 1917 code. Um, but the idea that it should still be celebrated penitentially, I think, holds, and that, that uh, the readings of Advent point to that. I mean, mm-hmm. there's supposed to be, 
sort of, you know, rend your heart, not your garments, get ready for the second coming type stuff. Yeah. Um, why did that change? Well, we did change the discipline. And then I think culturally, I mean, you don't need me to tell you the way the Christmas season is celebrated culturally and commercially in our country and, and holiday parties and all the rest of it that can, yeah. that can change it from a penitential uh, season to, to something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking about, you know, December 26th when, you, see, you know, you're driving down the street and you see all these Christmas trees uh, along the side of the road waiting for the, uh, the uh, trash guys to pick them up. How sad. You know, it's just sad. You know that that their people are so ready to just move on. Yeah, oh. and there's poor trees. Poor trees, absolutely. Yeah. There, there you go, Deacon Danny. Hope hope that is helpful for you. Here's one now from Anna, Doctor Anders. On your program carried back on November 27th, you said that the Church of England was in schism or schism with the Catholic Church, but had a valid priesthood and a true Eucharist until Edward the Sixth, the son of Henry the Eighth, changed the priesthood. Can you give me the citation to Edward's decree and the name of a book that gives me the full decree in English and which discusses Discusses this decree. Thanks, Anna. Yeah, thanks. So you need to actually look at Apostolicae Curi, which is the papal encyclical that defined the infallible conclusion of the Church that Anglican orders are null and void, and it references the Edward Nine Ordinal. Okay, that'll do it. All right, and uh, thank you so much uh, for your email. Here's one from Chris in Houston. Thank you for your show, Dr. Anderson, Tom. We know that the books of the Bible are the inspired Word of God. But did divine inspiration stop after the writing of the book of Revelation? In other words, why hasn't the church added books to the Bible based on the inspired writings of, say, St. Teresa or St. Thomas Aquinas? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. So first of all, your, your question presumes that Revelation was the last book written. That's not something that we know. I don't think we, we know with certainty what the order of composition was. But regardless of that, the Catholic position is that the the inspiration uh, as a feature of sacred texts uh, applies only to the canon of biblical books. Um, so the writings of saints, we you, you you might hear somebody say, well, you know, that song was just inspired. What they mean by that is that it was moving. We mean more by that when we use the word inspiration. Inspiration means... The, the term first occurs in sacred scripture in in, in Second Timothy. <coughs> the Greek word literally means God breathed, uh-huh. and uh, it refers to the Catholic belief that there are certain books that were produced under God's direct control and agency, such that they communicate exactly what God wanted to say. And and that that feature is only applicable to the biblical books. Now, revelation does not necessarily stop. Inspiration stops with the biblical canon. Revelation does not necessarily stop, but public revelation stops. So what do we mean by public revelation? Public revelation are those things that Christ taught uh, to be handed down to all Christians from every generation thereafter. So the revelation of Christ and his teaching handed on to the apostles, that is the substance of the Catholic faith, that stops with the incarnation and with the teaching of Christ. Now, private revelation, so let's say, you know, God tells you, hey, I want you to, you know, pack up and 
leave home and go be a missionary or something. Well, God can share that with you if he wants to. That's sure. called private revelation. But it's not the public revelation of the church. Chris in Houston, thanks so much uh, for your email. Hey, we're taking your calls right now at 833-288-EWTN. It's the Wednesday afternoon edition of Call to Communion. Do stay with us. It's called to Communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number is just for you, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Uh, before we get to the phones, let's uh, get this question here from Jeff in North Dakota uh, watching us today on YouTube. Jeff says, hello, I was speaking to a Protestant about some challenging things Martin Luther said, but they kept making the distinction between early Luther and late Luther to justify this. What is the difference, if any? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Man, I would love to to get more information on what this person thinks the difference between early and late Luther is. Um, uh, and if he's suggesting that, you know, one Luther was more benign than the other, that may be the, <laughs> the suggestion. And I don't know which he prefers. But I, I will tell you that most scholars agree that Luther was a pretty crotchety fellow from the very beginning. But Man, he was crotchety, like, to the extreme by the end. I mean, he—Luther he, really had it out for anyone who disagreed with him. Mm. Right? And that was, that, was, that was characteristic of Luther all the time. And a, a really good book on, on Luther's tendency to go after people who disagreed with him is by Mark Edwards, and it's called Luther and the False Brethren. And it's Luther's polemic about—against anyone who disagrees with Luther, yeah. right? Um now, Edwards wrote another book about old Luther, and he does draw a distinction between young Luther and old Luther, um, and, uh, and it's called Luther's Last Battles, Politics and Polemics, 1531 to 1546. And that tendency to condemn anybody who disagrees with him is on full display in the last 15 years of Luther's life, where he, man, he just, it is, it is hellfire and brimstone called down against everybody. Right, wow. and some of the nastiest things that Luther said about people fall in that later period. But uh-huh. there was plenty of nasty in the beginning. There's plenty of nasty in the beginning, and and the Luther and the false brethren will will give you some of that nasty as well. Um, and I would challenge you also, you know, go pick up, go pick up, uh, say Luther's three treatises from 1520. Hmm. So very early in his reforming career, read the kind of stuff he says about Catholics. It's bad stuff. You know, read about Luther and the Zwickau prophets, about Thomas Munzer. I mean, read about the people that Luther went after early in his career. Vicious stuff, vicious stuff, right? Um, a book about the very young Luther is by the Catholic uh, historian Jared Wicks. Uh, the book is called um, Man Yearning for Grace, and it's about Luther's intellectual development before the Reformation. And so he wasn't engaged in polemical discourse at that time. Mm-hmm. But you can see the psychology beginning to form, right, in, that, in those early periods, a psychology that would eventually give birth to all this kind of vitriolic outburst. Okay. Well, very good. And uh, Jeff in North Dakota, thanks for checking us out today on YouTube. We hope that is helpful for you. As you know, this is the era of fake news. And I just read yesterday that the, uh, the official Merriam-Webster word of the year was authentic. People want to know what is true. They want to know, you know, if it's AI, I may or may not agree with it. 
let me tell you something. You can rely on Catholic News Agency to cover the mission and activities of the Catholic Church, including social, political, moral, and cultural issues from a perspective of faith. Again, for the latest Catholic news, visit catholicnewsagency.com. I guarantee as somebody used to say, uh, no fake news at all. It's an online service from us here at EWTN. By the way, you can now get timely news updates directly into your email inbox. Visit EWTN.com. Click on the word subscribe. It's called Communion here on EWTN. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Beginning today with Diane, a first-time caller in Bedford, New York, listening on Sirius Channel 130. Diane, what's on your mind today? Hi, uh, just a quick question. Were any of the books of the Bible written by a woman? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, as you may be aware, the, the question of the historical authorship of the biblical books is a controversial one. Um, and and there are many books whose authors we simply do not know. And so it would really be impossible to say with certainty that none of them was written by a woman. Um, I will tell you that one of the oldest portions of the Bible, scholars typically think, is the Song of Deborah, found in Judges chapter 5. And uh, I can't tell you that Deborah wrote Deborah's song, yeah. but it is ascribed to a woman, uh-huh. at the very least, and, uh, and it's extremely early. Now, um, I'm going to go a little bit off the rails here. The, uh, the, the literary scholar Harold Bloom, who is not a trained biblical scholar, he's a literature guy and uh. not a Catholic believer, um, famously argued that the book of J, which is one of the constituent parts of the Pentateuch, was authored by a woman from the court of Solomon. Um, I mean, in my opinion, the evidence that he brings forth for that is is very thin, Uh right? So, I mean, I'm far from convinced, but there certainly have been critical scholars that have argued for female authorship of of portions of sacred scripture. But in terms of something that's canonically recognized, um, we don't have any direct evidence from, you know, from from the canon, uh, but, uh, but there are hints. There are hints. All right. Diane, is that helpful for you? Very good. Thank you so much. Love the show. Thank you. Thank you. And that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, he's here on this Wednesday afternoon, 833-288-3986. Call to communion here on EWTN Radio. Interesting email from Nancy. What is Messianic Judaism? Do they believe in the divinity of Christ and that he was the Messiah and that he'll come at the end of the world in power and glory to judge the living and the dead at the final judgment. How are they similar? How are they different to Catholics? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so Messianic Judaism is a, is a form of Protestantism, and generally Messianic Jewish congregations have beliefs that are broadly in line with, with mainstream Protestant belief. Uh, many of them subscribe to fundamentalist dispensational interpretations of the Old Testament, which is understandable because dispensationalists tend to place a, a, a pretty high priority on the nation-state of Israel uh, and, impl- and implicate it in the fulfillment of future prophecy. Mm. And that would be amenable to someone that, say, had, you know, sort of Zionistic leanings. That would be, you know, part and parcel of that. Okay. Um, uh, you know, stylistically, 
uh, Messianic congregations, so-called Messianic congregations, are designed to appeal to people who have a Jewish background. And so their form of worship and their architecture is meant to resemble the synagogue. Mm -hmm. And they call their pastors rabbi and things of that sort. Um, but they're not rec uh, modern Judaism doesn't recognize Messianic Judaism as a form of Judaism. It's a form of Christianity. Okay. And, uh, and, uh, and I, as a Catholic, regard it as a form of Protestantism. Okay. Uh, Nancy, thanks so much uh, for your email. Kim is listening in in Lincoln on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hello, Kim. What's on your mind today? Hi. I'm, I'm curious. When you go to confession and you confess your sins, um, your sins are forgiven, but you still have to spend time in purgatory, then why does the priest bother to give you a penance at that time? Thank you. So that you won't have to go to purgatory. Hey. Yeah, pur purgatory is just for people who haven't done adequate penance in this life. Okay. So if you get all your penance done here, it's, uh, you know, straight to heaven. Sounds pretty sweet to me. Kim, thanks so much uh, for your question. Call to communion here on EWTN. couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Charles listening in Fort Madison, Iowa, on the great KDME Catholic Radio. Charles, what's on your mind today, sir? Good afternoon. I'm a Catholic, but I'm reading a textbook that uh, apparently has been written by a non-Catholic and non-believer. I'm trying to make sense of this thought that he passes. I'll read it to you. It's just uh, two sentences. Let us suppose a great prince governing a wicked and rebellious people. He has it in his power to punish. He thinks fit to pardon them. But he orders his only beloved and begotten son to be put to death to expiate their sins. Yeah, I would, um, I would not vote for that monarch. <laughs> no. I, would, I would call that grossly unjust. I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, sure. I mean, how, how would you like it if, um, uh, you know, if somebody came and, you know, I don't know, robbed your house and killed your child, and um, and uh, and then someone suggested, I have a good idea. Why don't we let him go scot free and we'll kill your other child? That'll make you feel better, won't it? Ugh. You'll, why, don't, why don't you expiate your wrath on your living child and let the murderer who killed the first one go free? Mm. That would that would strike me as patently absurd sure. and and a, and a great travesty of justice. Right, and so the Catholic view of the death of Christ is not that because it would implicate God in gross injustice. Uh, that is the way many Protestants understand the death of Christ: that God wants to forgive humanity, but He's somehow constrained by the necessity of His own nature to punish. Which again is kind of bizarre that God would be constrained by something external to Him. Catholic yeah. faith doesn't teach that, um, and, uh, and that God has to get it out of His system, so to speak, and that He decides to punish Jesus instead of humanity uh, in order to expiate his wrath. Uh, and none of that is a flattering portrait of God or any kind of construal of justice that we would recognize as justice. Nor is it biblical. That's not the way sacred scripture presents the death of Christ. It's not presented in the Bible as a penal substitution. Charles, is that helpful for you? Well, uh, it still leaves me uh, wondering. What are you wondering? Well, you just affirmed everything that it's it's absurd to think that uh, a maker would do this to his only beloved and begotten son, and yet we as Christians, as Catholics, believe that's what happened. No, we don't. No, we don't. It isn't? No, no, that's not what we think happened. That is not what happened on the cross. 
Protestants think that happened. Catholics do not think that happened. Mm-mm. Here's what the Catholic Church thinks about the death of Christ. So uh, uh, let me give you a different a different scenario. All right. Um, uh, imagine um, someone like a, maybe a war hero who gives his life to save his brothers. Right. Or maybe, say, a, a, a social activist, a, a, a human rights activist or a civil rights activist who teaches the truth and calls on the wicked to repent, even though by doing so he puts himself in mortal danger. So take somebody like Martin Luther King Jr., for example, who, who knew that his life was in danger by advocating for civil rights for African Americans, and yet he went forth and took the risk anyway. He was assassinated. How do we as a culture regard people like that? Well, we think their sacrifice is very noble and honorable. Yes. And, and we think it's worthy of reward, worthy of recompense. And that's the way that Catholics regard the death of Christ, that Jesus came and taught the way of holiness. He taught the way of reconciliation with God and neighbor. He taught what was necessary to prepare for the kingdom of God. And that wicked men, not God the Father, but wicked men, put him to death because they didn't like what he was saying, and that God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. That's explicitly what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, that Jesus was put to death by unjust men, and because his death was unjust, we regard it as a martyrdom that God vindicated him by raising him from the dead and rewarded him for his pains. So whereas the Protestant view is that God was actively punishing Jesus in the crucifixion, the Catholic view is that humans punished Jesus and God rewarded him for his righteous death. And part of the reward was that he accepted the death of Christ as satisfaction for sin. Satisfaction is not the same thing as punishment. Uh, Making satisfaction is like, you know, if I ran into Tom's car over here and I I said, whoops, sorry, I bumped into your car. Uh, It looks like the body work's going to cost you two grand. Here's a check. I just made satisfaction. That's not penal substitution. Tom's not insisting that I be nailed to a cross and, you know, bled to death or something. Um, Christ makes satisfaction for us and, uh, and merits the grace of redemption that changes us and unites us in our character to Jesus and reconciles us to God. So it's not—we do believe in the death of Christ for sinners. Christ did die for sinners, but he died um, to unite us to God by way of satisfaction and merit— not by way of penal substitution. Charles, glad we could uh, clear that up for you. Thanks so much for your call from Fort Madison. Joanne is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Joanne says, what sacraments does a Catholic have to receive before being married in the Catholic Church? Um, yes, yeah, so, you know, all Catholics should receive all of the sacraments of initiation. So you should be baptized, yeah. you should receive your First Holy Communion, and you should be confirmed. And, uh, and, so, and, you would, and, and, if, and if you are conscious that you are not in the state of grace, then you should receive the Sacrament of Reconciliation so that you can have uh, you know, a good faith assurance that you're in the state of grace when you receive the Sacrament of Matrimony so that you can receive it worthily. There you go. Thanks for your question. Antonio, also watching us on YouTube, if God is spirit, why is there a distinction in the Trinity and in the personhood of the Holy Spirit? Yes, so I, I, the, the question seems like a non sequitur to me. I don't know why God being a spirit is thought to conflict with God being triune. 
because the distinctions between the persons are not material. They're not material distinctions, right? Um, they are distinctions of relation, but not of matter. Mm. And so being a spirit just means that God's not a material object. God has no material substance, okay? All right? In fact, if God were a material substance, then you couldn't have a trinity, because the distinctions would be would be not only relational but also material. Okay. So they couldn't be one essence in that sure, case. Sure. So he has to be a spirit for him to be one in essence. Antonio, thanks for watching us on YouTube. We're getting ready to head into what we call around here segment three. Segment three is coming up, and we've got wide open phone lines at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Call now. Hey, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. We have three lines open at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, our friends, (laughs) excuse me, our friends at Veritas Catholic Radio in Connecticut need to hear from you next week. They are airing a special pledge drive all next week. So if you're listening anywhere in the New York metro area or really anywhere, please support your EWTN Catholic radio station. Uh, You know, Mother Angelica set this up many years ago. She said, uh, why don't we offer radio stations 24 hours a day of solid Catholic programming. They don't have to worry about it. They don't have to worry about, uh, is this theologically sound? Because we've done the vetting for them. And then, you know, if they want to do local programming, they can certainly do it, carry as little or as much as they want. So uh, because of that, uh, you know, one station begat two, two begat five or six. Uh, When I joined the network in 1997, we had five affiliates. Now it's over 500 all over the world. So uh, please support your local EWTN Catholic radio station. Back to the phones right now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Brandy, a first-time caller in Woodbridge, Virginia, listening on Sirius 130. Hey, Brandy, what's on your mind today? Hi, thanks for taking my call. Uh Um, I just returned home. I went and visited family out in Oklahoma. Um, It's a small parish. Um, I'm a convert, so I didn't grow up in the parish, but when I go home, that's where we go to Mass. And the host uh, was dipped in the wine and presented as the body and blood of Christ. Um, My family and I all received communion. Um, I was talking to my mother-in-law about it, and she seemed a little bit troubled that it was combined, because she was under the impression it should never be combined, and I was just curious... Um, if special permissions are given, or what the case might be. Yeah, thank you. So the general instruction on the Roman Missal, which is the the booklet that that describes how the Mass must be celebrated according to Church law, does permit intinction as an acceptable way of receiving the body and blood of Christ, um, and it's the priest's discretion if he wants to do that. Now there are some there are some rules about it. So my understanding is that you you can't have any old extraordinary minister of communion giving out communion by attention. It has to be the priest. Yeah. All right. And, uh, and you know, one reason that a priest might do that is if he feels like, you know, people have an expectation of receiving communion in both kinds, uh, but he doesn't want to distribute the chalice for fear of spilling the precious blood, oh, attention yeah. is a safe way of doing that. Mm. So it is it is allowed in law. 
And it's a very common practice. In fact, it's the norm in Eastern rites of the Church to receive by intinction. So there's, there's nothing objectionable about it, and there's certainly nothing that says they should never be combined. Brandy, thank you so much uh, for your call. Denise, watching us on YouTube this afternoon, says, I'm asking for my Baptist friend. She says she overcame doubt of her salvation when she read this verse from Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. I know you're going to be looking that well, up. Let's look up Colossians 2, 11 to 14. Yes. Um, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Right, so a Catholic reading that text, I would say, well, what St. Paul has said here is that in baptism, all of our sins have been wiped away and the charge against us has been nullified and that I've been buried with Christ and given a new nature and the infusion of the Holy Spirit and the ability to live a new life. Yeah, that's the Catholic position. What, what your friend is leaving out is the continuing biblical teaching that, that it is possible to remove myself from that state of grace. That if I, if I go back to uh, filthy deeds of fornication and adultery and factions and hatred and jealousy and drunkenness and carousing and the like, that I will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's explicitly what Paul teaches in other verses, <clears throat> like Galatians chapter 5. Um, and so, yes, <clears throat> excuse me, I keep coughing here. Yes, we die with Christ in baptism and are, receive this new nature and the forgiveness of our sins, and that enables us to walk in holiness of life and to imitate the character of Christ and obey his teaching, which if we fail to do, we forfeit that grace and we lose our salvation. So that's clearly the teaching of the Bible. St. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2 that it's better not to have entered the way of righteousness than to enter and then turn back. Hebrews chapter 6 says that for those who have entered into Christ in this way and that yet continue sinning, they crucify the Son of God all over again, and there's no sacrifice for sin that remains, right? So the, the Scripture is very stark on the necessity of holiness of life after baptism, so much so, in fact, that in antiquity, in the second century, there was a widespread belief, it, it was false, and the Church condemned it, but there was a widespread belief that if you sinned more than once after baptism, you were lost. And, it, and there was a big controversy. It was called the Controversy of the Second Repentance, because there was a, this significant group of people, including characters like Clement of Alexandria, who was no slouch, um, believed that you know you could have you could have one absolution after after baptism, and after that you know you got kicked out of the church and you were toast, literally. Um, the Pope said no. Uh, um, uh, Pope Calixtus said no, no, no. Christ said we should forgive seventy times seven, so you know you, you, the church can continually grant absolution, um, but uh, but absolution implies contrition and penance, mm -hmm. like a, a decision to amend one's life and to come back into obedience to Christ. Okay. Denise also says that uh, 1 John 4.10 is also applicable in this case. Well, I, my answer is probably going to be the same one I just gave. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Call to communion. Uh, Denise, thank you so much for your, call, your question today. Call to communion on EWTN. Let's go to Jamie now in eastern Tennessee, listening on Sirius 130. Jamie, what's on your mind today? 
Hello, Dr. Andrews, and thank you all for taking my call. Sure. I am a convert to Catholicism, and I had just heard um, the gentleman's question and your response about how uh, Protestants look at Christ's crucifixion and how Catholics do, and mm-hmm. there's differences. Is Do you know of a book or two that you could recommend? Because I think that um, even though we're reading the same Bible, Protestants and our, our, our brothers and sisters— Excuse me, the, our brothers and sisters in Protestantism and Catholics, um, there's still that a lot that is interpreted completely differently. Do you have a book that discusses this or deals? Oh yeah, oh yeah. There's there's plenty. There are plenty of such books. So if you just want a book that gives you a kind of you know blow by blow, doctrine to doctrine comparison of the way Protestants and Catholics read the scriptures. Uh, one that you might appreciate would be Carl Keating's book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism. Great book. And it just kind of it goes what you know, just back and forth, like you say. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want a an extended discussion of the doctrine of the atonement, and that's the death of Christ. And this is this is academic text, so it's a little highbrow. Mm-hmm. A fellow by the name of Oxenham, Henry Oxenham, wrote a book in the 19th century called The Catholic Doctrine of the Atonement. That really lays out the differences between the Catholic understanding of the death of Christ and the Protestant. But again, that's you know that's a that's not a popular level book. It's a you know serious theology. Um, and then uh, you know any any work of Catholic doctrine or reflection is uh, is going to give you a a Catholic interpretation of the Bible that implicitly is going to be at odds with Protestant reading. So mm-hmm. a, a really easy book. It's not going to contrast Protestantism, but it will give you a framework for how Catholics read the Bible, uh-huh. would be John Bergsma's book, Bible Study Basics for Catholics. Okay. Hey, Jamie, thank you so much uh, for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Ellen now, a first-time caller in Oak Lawn, Illinois, listening on the great WSFI. Ellen, what's on your mind today? Oh, hi. Thank you for your program um, and your knowledge. Uh, the caller referring, and just the last caller also, uh, referring to, you know, the, the reasons for Jesus dying on the cross, um, I really meant a lot to me to hear your answer, because when I was, like, in high school, I read The Day Christ Died, and it really distanced me from God the Father for all these years. And um, this is the first time I'm hearing somebody explain it differently, and uh, I need to let that sink in a little bit more. And the other thing is, I just wanted your opinion. I have a Jerusalem Bible, like 1991 or something like that, mm-hmm. and it's so distracting because they don't capitalize any of the pronouns when they're referring to Jesus in the Bible. And uh, is this a common practice sometimes, or what's what's behind all this? Um, yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. So, you know, I'm well, while I'm talking to you, I'm sort of flipping through my copy of the New Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition Study Bible from from St. Benedict Press. And I'm just kind of trying to eyeball the capitalization questions, because I hadn't actually thought about that. Oh, really? Um, yeah. And, uh, and you know, one of the conventions of, of translations is that in the Old Testament, when the, when the uh, Hebrew name of God is used, which is Y-H-W-H in Hebrew, um, that is often rendered in English as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So the Hebrew word doesn't mean Lord, but Lord is the English word that's used. But by putting it all in caps, it signals to the reader this is actually a reference to the to the divine name YHWH. Right? Okay. So that's a convention that we still find in in modern translations. 
um, uh, you know, when I'm looking at the name of God, it's capitalized uh, in my NRSV right here that I'm looking at. Uh, the Lord is capitalized. Uh, now, the personal pronouns, like object pronouns, like him, like people came to him and asked Jesus, blah, blah, blah. Those are not capitalized in this version. Um, I don't know that they routinely have always been. Uh, I wouldn't, I'd have to actually research that question. But uh, to me, uh, these things are not of that great significance because, of course, the original biblical texts were written before the invention of lowercase letters. Ah. So what's called the minuscule, you know, text is yeah, something yeah. that's actually invented during the Carolingian period. And, uh, and original biblical manuscripts uh, w- would not have had that feature necessarily. So it's not—I mean, this is, just a, this is just a human convention, you know, done out of respect. But I, I don't think it necessarily implies any disrespect if you, you find various practices in terms of capitalization. Ellen, thanks so much uh, for your call today. Call to communion here on EWTN. Be sure to join us for EWTN News In-Depth coming up Friday night, 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio and Television. Your host, Monse Alvarado, leads a roundtable discussion series with in-depth interviews and, of course, unapologetically examining and analyzing important issues, news, and events from an authentically Catholic perspective. A wonderful program, EWTN News In-Depth, Friday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, exclusively on EWTN Radio and Television. All right, back to the phones now. Here's Nancy, a first-time caller in Lakewood, Colorado, listening on the Great Catholic Radio Network. Hey, Nancy, what's on your mind today? Yes, thank you for taking my call, and I, I really appreciate your question and answering. I love to listen to it. But my question is, I'm wondering why in in our prayers in church, um, we still use the thee and thou and thine, like in the Hail Mary and in the Our Father. And I hear people trying to switch themselves over to Hail Mary full of grace, blessed are you among women, and blessed are... You know, I, I see that there's kind of a... Um, it bothers me when I hear two different things going on when we're praying. So I wonder why that is. Why do we use those pronouns, uh, or... Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So obviously when it comes to the English language used in the liturgy, then all Catholics are obliged to use the form that's given to us by the Church. So it's not up to us to change the language according to our preferences. When it comes to private devotions, and things like the Hail Mary fall under the category of private devotion, it really is up to the discretion of the individual. Um, My this is my layman opinion on this. I mean, I don't have any kind of authoritative view. It's just my personal opinion. It seems to me that people become attached to devotional forms and ascribe to them, maybe implicitly, maybe without even thinking, a kind of sacred significance. Um, and, uh, and because of that, because of their you know, sort of quasi-liturgical character, mm. um, they get ingrained in people's habits and minds, and it seems, uh, it seems maybe... I think improperly might seem blasphemous to somebody or inappropriate to change the form that, you know, the way grandmama used to say it. That's yeah. the way they learned it, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, I'll give you a really, really trivial kind of humorous example of that because I was just reading a, a comical article about it a few minutes ago. Um, I grew up reading the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, the children's books. And as you know, Lewis published those books. He wrote and published those books in a given order. But uh, one of the last books in the series, um, 
is a kind of prequel to the first book. Even oh, though really? He, even though he published it much later, uh-huh. it tells the story of what happened before the first book. Mm. And in modern editions of those books, you'll find the, the order reversed, and so that the prequel comes first, and then the one that was originally published. And because that's not the way I read it growing <laughs> up, to my mind, that is the bad way. Like, mm. you got to do it the way I did it when I was growing up. Yeah. And if you yeah. don't do that, you're a bad person. Of course, I'm just teasing. You're not really a bad person. Of course. But, you know, that's how I, it, it, it grates against me, you know. Like, these aren't the proper spoons. They're not the kind of spoons that grandmom has, you know. That's funny. And I think that in, that inclination, when something is precious to us, uh, we tend to sort of um, solidify, to mm. reify the form and attach to a kind of sacral significance to it. Well, now we know where George Lucas got the idea. I'm going to re- I'm going to start out with uh, episode whatever it was four four, yeah. four and then I'll do four five and six and then I'll go back and do one two and three or or whatever it was I mean yeah, yeah exactly which leads to endless controversy with my children when I try to talk about Star Wars and we we don't mean the same thing by the word <laughs> you know I'm like no no the one I, the first one I saw in nineteen was it seventy seven yeah yeah. yeah. No jar. This is a no jar jar banks zone. Absolutely. All right. All right. Here is uh, Joan now. Joan is a first time caller in Oregon, listening on the great modern day radio. Joan, what's on your mind today? Well, I've tuned in um, while you were talking about someone who had um, asked if you were if you went to confession, confessed your sins, and said your penance that you would still go to purgatory and. Uh-huh. So I wasn't quite clear on if I heard your answer correctly or not, but I've been reading the Daily Pilgrimage to Purgatory, um, as suggested. And every day, one of the souls in Purgatory, every day of the week, talks about one of their regrets and had they, like, wasted time or um, extravagance um, to the neglect of, the poor, or others, um, wasted graces, evil. These are some of the things that they've regretted. And I just, um, it's my, it's always been my understanding that even though we confess our sins and say our penance, there are still sins that we've committed that need atonement. And that for that, we go to purgatory. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, um, you're correct that we 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 perform an act of penance uh, in asso- association with the sacramental act of penance. Um, uh, it is possible that a person might perform a penance as part of the sacrament and satisfy justice such that he he or she goes to heaven immediately when he dies. But that's not true for all of us. So there are those that may have to do additional penance in purgatory. Joan, thanks so much for your call. Greg is a first-time caller from Indianapolis, listening on Catholic Radio Indy. Greg, what's on your mind today, sir? Oh, yeah, well, I had two questions. It was one to repeat the uh, mentioning of Protestant view versus Catholic view about Christ's death. Yes. Uh, that Dr. Anderson spoke of, as well as the Pentus point of view, which I agree you do have to pay a penance, but, but it's not really taught. Because most people just always assume that, well, I, I'm sorry. Well, no, you still have to go make it right. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So the, the Catholic view of the death of Christ 
is spelled out for us in sacred scripture in a number of places. One of them is Romans chapter 3, where Paul says that the death of Christ functions as a sacrifice of atonement. And he's referring to a specific Old Testament sacrifice. So you just go back and read Leviticus chapter 5, and you understand how Old Testament sacrifices work, and that gives you the model for understanding the death of Christ. And in the Old Testament, if somebody was conscious of a sin or conscious of some sort of violation of Mosaic law, they would be required to bring an offering, uh, typically an animal, but could also be produce, something from their possessions, and they would sacrifice the use of that thing uh, uh, in token of, uh, of satisfaction for the offense that they had done. Now, if you, if you think about the logic of that, it's fairly obvious that the purpose of bringing an animal and killing it was not because God is bloodthirsty and he likes smoked meat. <laughs> that, that's not the purpose. The purpose no. was for the penitent to show that he was willing to give up something of value uh, in, in, uh, in token of his sincerity to amend his life. And that's how the death of Christ functioned, that Christ gave up something of value, namely his own human life, on our behalf, and he did it in the context of martyrdom, right? He offered himself up to ungodly men who put him to death for teaching the truth. And just like we would regard, and I use the example of Martin Luther King Jr., we, we think it's noble and admirable that M.L. King put himself out there in the public eye, even though he knew he might get assassinated. And we say how, how, how remarkable that is, how worthy of reward and merit that is. Jesus did that, only more so. He put himself out there teaching the truth, knowing the personal risk he took. He was put to death by unjust men. And, and God regarded the death of Christ with favor. He smiled on the death of Christ. He saw Christ's self-offering as something meritorious, just as we would see it as something meritorious and rewarded Jesus by pouring out on his body as a church the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's the biblical view of the atonement. That's the Catholic view of the atonement. The Protestant view is very, very different. Uh, and the, the doctrine was fully articulated by John Calvin in the 16th century. Protestant view is that God is angry with the human race and that God is constrained by the necessity of his own nature to punish sin, period. He can't let it off scot-free. He would like to... Uh, forgive humanity, but he can't because this he's constrained again by some necessity of his nature to, to expiate sin. Um, so he comes up with the idea of punishing Jesus instead of humanity, of imputing our sin to Christ and imputing Christ's righteousness to us. And so he punishes an innocent person, namely Jesus, and acquits guilty people, namely us, and thus is satisfied, as it were, divine justice. The Catholic looks at that and says, that's nuts. <laughs> that's not justice. You would never call it justice if a human judge, imagine a human judge in the courtroom who said, well, you know, Joe Blow here has been found guilty of murder. I have a good idea. Let's let him go free, and instead, we'll kill the little sister of the victim. Wow. That's a great idea. She's innocent and pure. We'll kill her. And we'll let the murderer go free. Swell. Yeah. We wouldn't call that justice. Nope. We would call that gross injustice. But that's the Protestant view of the atonement, that God punishes an innocent person in order to acquit guilty people. And the scriptures don't teach that about the death of Christ. Logic doesn't teach that about the death of Christ. So why do, prophets, why do Protestants believe it? Where did they get this idea from? And the idea emerged 
as the kind of metaphysical justification for the Lutheran doctrine of justification by faith alone. See, Luther taught that you can be saved just by believing that you're saved for Christ's sake. And to make sense of that, they had to come up with a theory that makes that work. And the Protestant doctrine of the atonement is the theory that purports to justify Luther's understanding of salvation. But it's not biblical, and it's certainly offensive to to our sensibility. Um, and the, as, as far as penance is concerned, you're absolutely right. You know, if I if I back into Tom's car in the parking lot and I rush into the office and say, "Tom, I busted your car. I'm sorry." Well, that's all well and good, but but I, I'm not really sorry, and I'm not really seeking justice and reconciliation if I don't at least give him the name of my insurance adjuster yeah. and then pay my deductible. There you go. Greg, thanks so much for your call. We have just enough time for Ann, a first-time caller driving through Virginia, listening on Sirius 130. Ann, what's on your mind today? Hello, good afternoon, Tom and Dr. Andrews. Thanks for taking my call. So I'm trying to answer the question of a Protestant who, um, you know, most Protestants believe they're all part of the body of Christ, and we believe they are, too, for the most part. But if we go with them to Protestant Church on Sunday, and then we say, now you can come to Mass with me on Sunday, because I have my Catholic obligation to go to Mass, most of the time we say that is because they didn't have the Eucharist, and we need to go receive the Eucharist. But what if we're in some situation that we cannot receive the Eucharist, what is the point or the reason that we are required to go to Mass, to yeah. be at Mass. Sure, sure, thank you. I appreciate the question. So you're you're mistaken about the reason that Catholics go to Mass. You presented it as Catholics have to go to Mass in order to receive the Eucharist. That's not true. We go to Mass in order to offer the sacrifice. Communion, receiving the Eucharist as communion, is not a necessary part of participating in the sacrifice. Uh, now, most Catholics today don't know that. They think the point is communion. The point okay. is actually the sacrifice of the Mass, the offering of Christ's body and blood. And that is something that no Protestant ever does in his worship service. In fact, it is a point of Protestant dogma to deny that sacrifice is a part of Christian worship, whereas for Catholics, it is the essence of Christian worship. And I'm glad we could get your in, uh, get your uh, your question in today. Thanks for your call. Couldn't get to Larry in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Larry, call us up another time, please. Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. Be sure to join us tomorrow for the Thursday edition of EWTN's Call to Communion. Until then, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Andrews. We will see you then. God bless. <laughs>